Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast, and I'm Matt Shawley, back after my two weeks of gallivanting about leaving you in the very capable hands of Patrick Maguire. So uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, everything that he had to bring you over the last uh, couple of weeks. Coming up on today's episode then, this time last year, Afghanistan was on the brink. British troops and the American troops pulling out uh, as the country fell back into the hands of the Taliban after, what, 20-odd years. So what's it like there 12 months on? I've been speaking to Christina Lamb, uh, the award-winning war correspondent who's in Kabul uh, reporting for the Sunday Times uh, to get a sense of her whether or not her fears for the country have been borne out and uh, what the future might hold. Fascinating interview with Christina coming up. Uh, before that, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. No Libby Rachie today because Libby Purvis is in for Mariella Foster on Times Radio. It's a bit confusing. Uh, so instead, uh, we've got Rachie Rachie. Uh, Rachel Sylvester joined by the new statesman's Rachel Cunliffe. Let's start with uh, the politics of... Uh, Tax cuts, cost of living crisis, uh, handouts, uh, and and all of that. The um, uh, the poll, the YouGov poll for the Times, uh, says that two thirds of voters believe the government would be wrong to prioritise tax cuts over tackling the cost of living. Sixty four percent think uh, the government should concentrate on getting inflation under control. Seventeen percent uh, think the party should be reducing people's taxes. Uh, Rachel, this suggests that. Uh, <laughs> The, the conversation which is going on within the Conservative Early Party. Early breakfast on Times Radio oh. with MHR. Hello. It's time to experience smarter HR, payroll and finance. <laughs> <laughs> what is going on? The machine, the machine wants to tell us about early breakfast. I mean, it's very good, but, you know. Um, so, yeah, this poll, this poll basically suggests, Rachel, that the, um, uh, the conversation was going on within the Conservative Party and definitely within the Liz Trust campaign, which seems to be ahead is completely at odds with what the general public thinks should be the priority. Yeah, I think the interesting thing is the key question for the Tories now is, are they talking to the country or are they just talking to themselves? And the danger with this whole leadership context is it's a tiny number of 160,000 or, or whatever it is, voters um, deciding who's going to be our next prime minister and that they've got completely different views to the rest of the country. So this whole business about no handouts and tax cuts, what about the people who don't pay tax, who are the sort of poorest in society? Those on the lowest incomes are going to benefit the least from this. Um, and the Liz Trust campaign seems to have absolutely no answer to that. Uh, and we're facing this sort of monumental crisis. Uh, and the danger is the leadership contest looks completely at odds with the wider electorate. And this stores up problems, doesn't it, uh, Rachel? Because one of the things, you know, the Labour Party are briefing, oh, they're cock-a-hoop, they can't believe their luck. 
uh, the the all of this material that the Tories are laying out that they can use at the next election. Keir Starmer did all of this, didn't he? Uh, he laid out this sort of quite left wing program, Corbyn Mark II, nationalise everything and tax rises for the mega rich and whatever else. Uh, he becomes leader and then he he drops it all afterwards. Uh, this, they never seem to learn, do they? Rachel well, Cunliffe. <laughs> uh, it's thanks for the clarification there. Uh, it's quite normal that when people are, are running to be leaders of the party, they speak to their base, either to the left or, or to the right. And then when they go to a general election, they speak to the centre and, and to the country. Uh, I think the difference between what Keir Starmer did and what Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak are doing now is that Keir Starmer wasn't about to become prime minister, whereas whoever wins is going to be leading the country in, in four weeks time on the brink of or possibly midway through, depending on how far through it you think we are, uh, an economic crisis. Um, now, Liz Truss has said no handouts. Uh, Rishi Sunak has said multi-billion pound package of support, but he's only just saying that now. I mean, if you if you look back to his resignation letter from Boris Johnson's government, it was all about um, a dispute over economic direction and fiscal responsibility. So it's a very new position for Rishi Sunak to suddenly say, yes, I'll throw some cash around. Clearly, that's sort of desperation there. But I think it's quite obvious that whoever does become Prime Minister, looking at the situation, probably is going to have to pivot very quickly to a package of support. You've got the energy price cap that's going to be £500 more expensive even than the forecast earlier this year. You are going to have people deciding between heating their homes, feeding their children. No Prime Minister is going to be able to say, yeah, I'm just not doing anything uh, about that. They, they, they wouldn't survive. The problem that you've got now is that we've got four more weeks of wasted time while they pretend they're not going to do anything because that's what they think Tory members are going to hear, which means going to want to hear, which means that they're not actually laying the groundwork for coping with any of those challenges. And the thing that struck me, Rachel Sylvester, was um, as well as the details of all of this and and the, the you know Liz Truss ruling out handouts and then saying, oh, when I said not handouts, what I meant was possibly handouts. Um, <laughs> what this tells us about Liz Truss's ability to 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 lead and going into a general le- this feels like it could be an absolute nightmare for the because I mean quite apart from the economy is going to be pretty disastrous. Uh, you'd assume the general election will be not before 2024 because you'd hope to be a, out the other side of it. Um, but this this doesn't suggest that, you know, we are going to replace Boris Johnson with a Rolls-Royce Downing Street operation. No, exactly. The thing I think is quite interesting about Liz Truss is I quite like her, actually. She's quite good fun to have a drink with. She's got a sort of chutzpah to her. She's the only person I've ever interviewed who wanted an Instagram photo after so she could put it on her, you know, Instagram, a selfie after so she could put it on her Instagram page. Um, But there's a sort of something odd about her. I think anyone who's worked with her or knows her, there's a sort of slight notch, 10% notch off. emotionally and there's a sort of lack of empathy in her and I think that's the problem she seems at the moment almost to be priding herself on looking a bit cruel Uh, and I think that could really backfire for her and for the Conservative Party if she becomes Prime Minister uh, and sticks to anything like this approach in government Um, there's a sort of lack of emotional awareness or compassion at the moment she's she's kind of um, aping Thatcher trying to be tough Um, efficient Um, I'm the person who gets things done is her mantra but there's a danger that she just looks a bit mean Um, and there's a lot I think that sort of emotional notch missing is one of the real problems with her um, campaign and her candidacy 
And Rachel Cunliffe, which of the two, Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak, do you think the Labour Party would be most concerned about going up against? And, and are they being complacent uh, by getting overexcited about this this sort of public mess that, that seems to be playing out? I, know, I think if I were the Labour Party, I'd be quite excited too by the fact that both the candidates are just throwing them attack lines for the next election. I mean, Labour can just sort of sit back and just sort of store this up and, and archive it. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. I was talking to someone in the Tory party yesterday who pointed out that uh, when we go into the next election, we will still be going into it with the Conservatives with a, a majority of, of nearly 80 seats. And it's highly unusual to have a, a reversal that uh, that um, significant uh, just in, in a four or five year time period. Uh, I think Probably the the idea that Liz Truss is easy to beat, I would be a bit cautious on. I mean, she has managed to metamorphosize multiple times under multiple <laughs> conservative prime ministers. And she was a Remainer and then Cameroon and then she was a, a Brexiteer and then she was even more Brexity. And she's had I mean, she's, she's been in the cabinet, I think, longer than any other conservative minister um, because she is able to survive and, and reinvent herself. And that that is dangerous. But I do agree with what Rachel Sylvester said a moment ago about there being something a bit cold and a slight lack of empathy about her that really could be used against her. I think there's a cartoon in The Times today, which is Liz Truss as the fairy godmother waving a magic wand and there's a there's a family of starving children on the street and she's giving them tax cuts. And I think that's a very effective image that if I were on the Liz Trust team, I'd be quite wary of because you don't want that kind of narrative of cruelty and, and heartlessness to become embedded in what the country thinks of your candidate. Yeah, and I suppose that's the, that's the, 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 the risk, I suppose, because the Conservatives is that what, what she thinks is working in order to get there might then become the... Because lots of people, the first time they've come across her, despite being an MP for so long... Uh, and uh, you know that might be the first fixed impression of her um, going forward. Well, let's uh, that's that's the, the, the race to become the next prime minister. Let's talk about the old the old bloke. He's still there. Uh, <laughs> Tory is he Allard... though? Is he? Is well, he's he? back. He's apparently he's back today. Apparently from his honeymoon, which was is a sort of fake honeymoon after his fake wedding. Um, which, <laughs> which anyway. So Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson's back, and uh, it, Tory allies, which of course we mean the Dean Doris. Uh, have accused a committee of MPs of uh, uh, investigating whether he misled Parliament of conducting a vengeful and vindictive witch hunt. Uh, the Commons Privileges Committee is going ahead with this inquiry into whether the Prime Minister committed a contempt of Parliament by misleading MPs uh, with his party gate denials. Uh, and there's been some suggestions uh, that, um, uh, that Boris Johnson, that Liz Truss, I think, there's, let me get this right, Rachel Sylvester, Liz Truss could become Prime Minister and agree to get MPs to vote down the privileges investigation, on the condition that Boris Johnson stands down as MP for Uxbridge, despite the fact the Tories have only got a majority of 7,000 there, and there's a very strong chance one of her first access prime minister could then be to lose another seat. Uh, how do you think this all pans out, Ray Sylvester? Oh, well, I think the idea that you can just sort of get rid of an inconvenient politically inconvenient um, parliamentary inquiry is just ridiculous. The idea that just because you've been ousted for lying effectively as Prime Minister, you then shouldn't be investigated by MPs for that very same thing. Seems bizarre and a sort of very strange logic. And it's just part of this whole thing among 
Johnson and his allies that somehow they think the rules just don't apply to them and that you can do something and there are no consequences to it. Um, sorry if that sounds a bit pompous. But, but also, you know, I mean, the, we've seen what happens when you do this. Boris Johnson essentially tried to do exactly this for Owen Paterson. Well, exactly. Back, so back I last just year, and it was the start of I, all of his troubles. Yeah, I think the last thing, I mean, I just don't see MPs voting that through. So Liz Truss, if she tried to do that, would almost certainly be heading for her first defeat as leader. So it just seems like a ridiculous idea. And, you know, the, the truth does matter. Um, and democracy depends on ministers and particularly the prime minister telling the truth to parliament. So the fact that, you know, the idea that you can somehow just bypass this what is after all a cross-party committee with a conservative majority that that shouldn't go ahead it just seems to me com completely wrong as well as ridiculous yeah it does i mean the other the other um uh prospect of a by-election rachel Cunliffe, is that, that some suggestions of nadine doris uh, going to the house of lords um, <laughs> but again that that like almost immediately as soon as boris johnson's gone because you can possibly cope without him um uh so that would be another by-election for the tories to, to fight well, that's, that's kind of what seems to be the, the trend for uh, political allies uh, then just get parachuted straight into the, the Lords. The other person who has been saying that this privileged, privileges committee is sort of a witch hunt and is skewed and we should vote the whole thing down is uh, Zach Goldsmith, who is in the Lords and who was made uh, a Lord just after losing his seat in an election. So I'm not sure he's anyone to, to lecture us on democracy. I think it's worth really looking at what is being um, asserted here by people like Goldsmith and, and Doris. They're saying that this committee is sort of unfair. Now, it's a, it's a committee that is seven MPs on it. Four of them are Conservatives. Any recommendations they make will then be voted on by the House of Commons, which has a significant Conservative majority. So if it's rigged in any direction, it's clearly rigged in Boris Johnson's favour. One of the people, the Tories on that committee is Sir Bernard Jenkin, who is sort of arch Brexiteer uh, in the past, a very strong Boris Johnson ally. So the fact that he has been critical of Boris Johnson over Partygate does not show that he, Bernard Jenkins, is not impartial. Uh, what it shows is that there is kind of almost universal cross-party acceptance that the behaviour of the Prime Minister wasn't acceptable. And this idea that if they've ever made a critical comment about the Prime Minister at all, then clearly they have relinquished their right to be on this committee. That That's kind of not what impartial means. And <laughs> with Nadine Doris, ordinarily, I'd say be very cynical and say, you know, she knows this, and she's just trying to make her point, And you know, that's fair enough. I'm not sure that she does know this. She seems to have a very strange grasp of democracy, which means that elected MPs on committees designed to hold the government to account shouldn't do their job because she, Nadine Doris, doesn't like what they're doing. That seems to be her perspective here. Yep, that's uh, that's Nadine Doris for you. Rachel Cunliffe from Rachel West there. And of course, you can uh, get yourself a Times subscription right now. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, my chat with Christina Lamb. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. So this time, one year ago, the Taliban were marching towards Afghanistan's capital, Kabul. The speed at which the group took back the country they'd lost to the West at the beginning of the century shot the world. I'm now the fourth United States president to preside over American troop presence in Afghanistan. I will not pass this responsibility onto a fifth. I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. We'll not conduct a hasty rush to the exit. We'll do it responsibly, deliberately, and safely. The U.S. and its allies have just started the withdrawal process and expect to complete it by September the 11th, a delay which has angered the Taliban. All British troops assigned to NATO's mission in Afghanistan are now returning home. Top United States general warning of civil war in Afghanistan after the U.S. troop withdrawal is completed. There is no military path to uh, victory for the Taliban. There must be a peaceful and a negotiated settlement. And the UK will continue to work to ensure that that takes place. And uh, I believe that that can happen. Talks between the Afghan government and the Taliban so far have gone nowhere, really. And many fear that perhaps uh, we could even see the the Afghan government side disintegrate. I don't believe that uh, the Taliban are guaranteed the kind of victory that you sometimes uh, read about. Some Afghan security units are collapsing. Police and soldiers giving up their bases and their weapons. We start with breaking news now. Taliban fighters have reached the Afghan capital, Kabul. This is a tense night in Afghanistan. The Taliban are back in charge after 20 years. Afghanistan's president, Ashraf Ghani, has gone. He's left the country. The truth is, this did unfold more quickly than we had anticipated. This has been many, in many ways something that uh, has been a, a, you know, a chronicle of, a, of an event foretold. We've, we've known for uh, a long time that this was the way things were going. Thousands of Afghans are now trying to escape, fearing a return to hardline Taliban rule. 
numbered among them will be women. Women who embraced freedom, embraced the right to education, to work and to participate in the political process. Those girls who have been educated will have no opportunity to use that education. Afghans are resorting to this, grasping at U.S. military aircraft and risking their lives. Some hung onto the wheels and fell to their death. Some people won't get back. Some people won't get back and um, we will have to uh, do our best in third countries to process these people. Mr. Speaker, the Foreign Secretary shouts now, but he stayed on holiday. He didn't even speak to ambassadors in the region as Kabul fell to the Taliban. With, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, of course, it's easy to say, but and I wouldn't have gone on holiday, let alone, um, uh, and, and would have come home earlier. Though we would not have wished to leave in this way, we have to recognize that we came in with the United States. The United States military did the overwhelming bulk of the fighting. And though we now leave with the United States, we will remain represented in the region. We're doubling our humanitarian assistance. And How does Britain's foreign policy work in a country like Afghanistan? If persistence isn't persistent, if endurance doesn't endure, then how can people trust us as an ally? How can people look at us as a friend? So one year on from all of that, how has the country changed? The Sunday Times chief foreign correspondent, uh, Christina Lamb, has been reporting on Afghanistan for decades, witnessing years of highs and an awful lot of lows. Well, now she's back in Kabul, meeting those whose lives were turned upside down when the Taliban took control last year. I caught up with her over the weekend, uh, spoke to her remotely and asked her to describe the atmosphere in the city. I would say the atmosphere, people seem a bit more fearful, actually, than they did before. Um, as you know, the leader of Al-Qaeda was um, killed, apparently, by Americans in a drone strike last week, um, having been apparently living in the centre of Kabul since the beginning of the year. So that's really... The Taliban are very angry about the drone strike. They're saying it wasn't him and the Americans should have consulted them and not just launched an attack in the centre of Kabul. Uh, lots of kind of conspiracy theories about who informed them and why he was here. And so that's kind of um, added to the, the tension. But of course, you know, we have seen... Unfortunately, a lot more restrictions being imposed by the Taliban in recent months and uh, not least on the media. Well, let, let's sort of work through some of those. There's also there's restrictions on the media, restrictions on women and girls as well. How, just describe for people who don't know what, what Afghanistan was like just over a year ago and the progress that had been, had been made. Yeah. So I've been coming here more than 30 years um, and so I've seen enormous changes. And when the Taliban were in power before in the 90s, this place was really cut off from the rest of the world. And what changed after 9-11 and when the NATO forces came here and the Taliban were removed and you had 20 years of um, international forces and presence here, um, the biggest change was that Afghanistan became much more connected to the rest of the world. Almost everybody you meet, even in rural, remote places, have smartphones, so they see how life is outside. 
Um, and of course, in that 20 years, there's a lot of focus on education because when the Taliban were in power before, they had notoriously banned girls from going to school and women from going to work. So uh, a lot of people had not had, a lot of girls had not had education. And so there was a big focus on that. And so in those 20 years, millions of girls have been educated. It was still a problem. A lot of girls were not going to school, but, you know, a lot more were. And, and so, you know, they've grown up thinking, as they should, that women can do anything they like and that they would be able to go to university if they wanted to, to get jobs in any field. And we've seen you know, Afghan women police officers, Afghan female judges, Afghan female film directors, um, all sorts of things that they have been doing in the last 20 years. And literally overnight on the 15th of August last summer, that ended. Um, it was heartbreaking, heartbreaking for those people who felt that their dreams had been shattered. And um, I mean, I'm not ashamed to say when I came then and I was interviewing people, a lot of the interviews just ended in tears because, you know, it was so difficult to just to see everything gone like that. And lots of the my female friends said to me, it would have been better if you'd never come, if the West had never come, because you gave us hopes and expectations that have just gone. Yeah, I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? In the, in the 90s, they didn't go to school, but that was, you know, that had long been the situation. But having it taken away was even worse than not having had it in the first place. Yeah, that's what they they feel. And I can see why they would, would feel that. Um, but then having said that, you know, there are some brave girls and women here who are still going to secret schools that people have, have set up because they say, why should we? be deprived of our education I mean these we call them secret schools they are not actual schools they're like rooms in the homes of, of people of teachers usually and the schooling is is kind of limited because it's maybe just for an hour a day and it's all different ages mixed together but it's it's better than nothing it gives them some hope and so some of those girls wrote me um, a diary a sort of letter to the world about how they feel and how forgotten because they they just can't understand and actually I can't understand either. Afghanistan's the only country on earth where girls can't go to high school and the rest of the world you know people say oh this is awful but no one's actually really doing anything about it. There was a lot of talk uh, sort of 12 months ago about sort of Taliban 2.0 that it was it was a new it was a new look modern Taliban for the modern age um, which, which you know, as the way that things have panned out, schools have closed, the Burke has been brought back, you know, the Ministry for Women became, what was it, the Ministry for Protection of Virtue and Prevention of Vice. Has there been any evidence at all that this Taliban is, is in any real sense, different to the old Taliban? No, you're absolutely right. A year ago, that's what we were all discussing, you know, is this different, these Taliban, some of them have been living abroad, some of their daughters are going to school. And I used to argue, well, I don't know if the Taliban have changed, but Afghanistan has changed. So just as we were talking about, everybody has smartphones, is much more connected to the rest mm. of the world. People have been educated, so it's a lot more literate country than it was. So I thought 
that that meant the Taliban couldn't behave as they did last time. I'm afraid I was wrong, because what we're seeing in recent months is exactly as the last time they were in power, um, more and more restrictions coming in. I think they've taken advantage of attention being off Afghanistan and people being focused on Ukraine. And so they have said that women should wear the burqa. It's not um, so far absolutely imposed with, but we all have to cover it. So I wear a black buyer, I cover my head, and so only my face is saying, showing. But they say that women, that's what they should be wearing. And I have friends who've been stopped in places and told you, why aren't you wearing a burqa? Um, they've also said that women shouldn't go anywhere without a male companion, that uh, women shouldn't drive or fly without a man, that if women are still working, that they should actually give their job to a male relative. <laughs> um, they've said women on TV, there are still some women working on television, should be fully um, covered wearing a hijab. And uh, so all of these sort of creeping restrictions, so things have been going in the wrong direction in the last few months. Um, and uh, nobody really knows why that is, because a lot of the individual Taliban leaders, when you meet them, ministers and things, will say, no, we want girls to go to school and we think women should work, etc." But it's not happening. So somebody is actually insisting, no, this is not what's going to happen. And how is it for you there as a woman and a journalist working? Is it, does it, is, is your job harder now? I think it is harder than it was. I mean, I've been back twice since the Taliban took over. And the first time I came, just after they'd taken over, I was quite nervous of how it would be and was pleasantly surprised that actually it was quite easy to work, that I didn't have any problems. We all have to get a letter from the Taliban when we arrive that we carry around saying that we're allowed to, to work. Um, and, you know, frankly, also I was finding I could go to places I hadn't been able to go to for years because the one good thing if you like is the security is much better i'm speaking to you from a hotel which the taliban twice tried to blow up and now they're in control of the security here so it's a very surreal situation um but we are able to go to places and it's the same for ngos working you know they can go to places they couldn't help people in before so that is one positive um, again, I was here January, February, I was, it was fine working. This time, it feels a bit different. You know, they have been some problems with foreign journalists. They uh, beat up a, um, a male journalist recently badly, and he had to leave the country. A female journalist I know was manhandled, which is extremely unusual here, and had a gun pulled on her. Another female journalist was called in and... Uh, fled the country and there's a much more a feeling of being watched what we do so it, it that sort of honeymoon period seems to be over as well as the taliban taking over christina afghanistan like countries around the world are being affected by huge levels of inflation i think the, the most of recent official figures were something like 15 percent uh inflation but for day-to-day -day, you know household goods and food you know it's multiple times 
uh, that. And I'm one of the most, well, I think one of the most harrowing things I've ever read, but definitely your writing was back in January, you you went to Afghanistan and you wrote about fathers choo- having to choose to s- sell their daughters, basically, just to get some money to feed the rest of their family, the, the most desperate situation. That's right. Um, I wrote about a girl called Fatima, an eight-year-old girl who was sold because the family were, were starving. Actually, I mean, the good news is a lot of readers... Uh, contacted afterwards wanting to help and we were able to to help and um, help the father get some work so that she could be brought back and so she's going to school and in fact after we finish speaking I'm going to see her so um, so that's good news but as you say the general situation here is just absolutely terrible I mean First of all, this is a country, 75% of the budget came from international aid. And overnight last year, when all the foreign troops and foreigners left, that stopped. So suddenly three quarters of the budget had gone. But also there was a sort of entire economy around that. There were so many foreign organizations and things. They hired, employed lots of people and all of that has gone. All the embassies have gone, you know. Um, And so... A lot of work went. Also, the um, assets in the central bank, about $9 billion, was frozen. And so there's no liquidity. All the banks have stopped. So people can't access uh, money. So there are actually um, almost no jobs and lots of people. So this is a crisis. Um, The UN says about 96% of people don't have enough to eat. So it's not just affecting the poorest people. It was, of course, already a very poor country, but it's also middle class because lots Mm. of people who did have jobs, who did have a reasonable lifestyle, lost those jobs when the Taliban took over, either because the Taliban ended things or because of the financial crisis. Um, On top of that, we've had the worst drought here in 40 years. The current harvest is much worse than people were expecting. There's a big problem of water shortages. I was talking to a farmer who was saying that he's having to dig 15 feet deeper now to get water. Um, And then, as you say, prices, of course, have gone up, of fuel, of um, commodities because of the war in Ukraine. So I was just talking to the head of the World Food Programme last night, and she was saying, you know, they have a a shortfall anyway of the money that they need, a shortfall of 960 million for this year dollars. And then on top of that, things she was saying probably going to cost 200 million dollars more because of this international crisis. So it's a really miserable situation. And the um, feeling earlier in the year that a lot of people were really going to starve to death, that so far, some aid has come in. The World Food Programme has expanded again. and But all they've managed to do, really, they say, is sort of stave off the situation. It's not... The problem's still there. They've just sort of stopped people starving for the next few months. But it's a really awful situation. And I suppose there's a tension there, isn't it? The reason the aid stopped was because the Taliban took over. But it's not... You know, I suppose the the, the hope being that if the Taliban uh, it were either wasn't there or behaved better, then it you know it would be rewarded with some aid. But it, it's of no help to the 
the people living there, the Taliban are in control and there is no money. But it's a really, it's a really tough, I suppose it's a moral question for international... It is, it is a big problem because at the government. beginning, you know, everybody pulled out and no one wanted to help Afghanistan um, because of exactly that, that they didn't want to be dealing with the Taliban. But the fact is the Taliban are here, right? Yeah. I mean, I was talking to the deputy foreign minister yesterday. He was like, you know, we're not going away if you don't help us. It's going to take much longer for us to be able to sort out the situation. More people will die. Is you know, is that what you want? And that is the problem here. That if you don't give the international support, then you're punishing the Afghan people because you've got a government here that that we don't like. Um, you know, many Afghans don't like that government, but you know. So I think that morally, that. There are ways of helping people in this country without having to go through the Taliban. Like UNICEF can pay teachers directly. Yeah. Um, the World Food Programme. I mean, the irony is because the bank system doesn't work or anything, they're literally, I don't know if you've seen the pictures, but they're flying in pallets of dollars, like yeah. $40 million at a time to be able to, to buy things here. Um, and so, yeah, there is now a lot more uh, international uh, NGOs operating than there were a few months ago, and they're they're trying to find ways. Of course, you can't. The Taliban are in control. You can't completely ignore them. You need to, permission from them to go into areas, yeah. and but the aid doesn't have to be delivered through them. It can yeah. be still done directly to people. And just finally, then the 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 situation one year on. I know you've written before about your fear that Afghanistan was being forgotten in, in part, a large part because of the situation in ukraine but also i suppose the the manner and the way the international america and britain left and the way that afghanistan has become a sort of dirty word in sort of you know why are we still there bring the troops home you know walk away from it essentially but that the situation i suppose there's gonna be a lot of attention on it over the next week or so as people mark the the, the anniversary of uh, the, the taliban taking over what What's your hope for Afghanistan in the future and, and why you're there to sort of shine a spotlight on it? That is such a hard question, Matt, because the sad thing about being here at the moment is it's really hard to find any hope. I mean, there are they're kind of no good guys. It's not as if there is, there is some part of the country not controlled by the Taliban from which you could kind of mount some operation. So I think, um, you know, unpalatable as it might be, um, any change has to be worked through the Taliban but it's very difficult because there have been a number of meetings with international diplomats including British diplomats and Taliban and I'm afraid all those people say that you know they don't feel like they're achieving anything it, the feeling at the beginning was because the country was so desperately in need of international aid that there would be some leverage for the international community to basically say you know, if you don't have an inclusive government, if you don't let girls go to school and women to work, we won't give you any help. But actually, the Taliban don't seem to respond to that. They more or less say, well, we've spent 20 years living in the mountains, not with almost nothing to eat, you know, so be it. And, um, you know, they claim that they're running the economy better. And the one thing uh, is seems to be true is that the, there was a lot of corruption from the last government. This Taliban regime is actually managing to collect as much revenue on the borders of coming in 
as the previous government was, even though economic activity is down so much. So, and they're also, they've got coal mines in the north, which of course now, because of the energy crisis, they're making more money from. Um, but it is a really, really grim situation and uh, it's hard to see. They don't, as I said earlier, things seem to be going in the wrong direction, not in any way that you could feel optimistic about. Well, but best of luck with your uh, your time there. Stay safe. Uh, it's really good to speak to you. And obviously, people will be able to read your reports in the, in the Sunday Times. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget, you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from? <laughs>